Let us pray together. God, who is a light and lamp unto our souls' ways in this world, we ask that you would help us to join the disciples to join Jesus of Nazareth, that we may figure out our call of how to serve you in this world, that the words of our mouths and the meditations of all our hearts may be truly acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. And let the people say, Amen. Please have a seat. We are now on the fifth Sunday of Lent, and we have during this Lenten season been embarking on a study, both in our sermons and in workshops after worship and on Tuesday mornings, about how we explore our faith. We started, you may remember, with a big question what is our faith? Or what is faith? Period. Question mark. And then we looked the successive weeks at the three main parts of the Trinity, God, the Creator, Jesus, the Anointed One, the Christ, and the Holy Spirit. All big concepts, not easily distilled into a sermon under 20 minutes, which is partially why we have given you take-home questions each week to continue this conversation on your own, in your own time or rhythm, or with other ones that you like to be in conversation with. We hope that you take these questions and mull around with them during the week. Today we come to two big concepts, the church and the world, which should only take a few minutes. (laughs) There are some questions in two parts, the first being, what is the church and why does it matter? And the second being, as people of faith, particularly the Christian faith, why and how does our faith, however we express it, matter to the rest of the world? Now, if you may have been uncomfortable with the Great Commission, as it is traditionally known, as it was read, and we'll get to that in a moment, I want to give you some verses that may sound a little comforting or easier for some of us to digest about how to think about church. In the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus was talking with his disciples about what it meant to forgive one another, what it meant to reconcile, he said at the end of that discourse, wherever two or three are gathered in my name... There I am with them. It's a comforting promise, meaning that we can basically set up church wherever there is more than one of us attempting to follow the way of Jesus. The book of Acts gets a little more specific about how it worked among the earliest church, in the earliest people in the movement of the church. After that fantastic, fiery appearance of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, which we heard about last week, where 3,000 people were added to their numbers. It says that the early church got down to more mundane daily tasks. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, They broke bread in their homes as well and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And then to the letter at the churches in Colossae, another way to think about our spiritual tasks and practices. We are encouraged to let the message of Christ dwell richly among us as we teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, 
and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in our hearts. And whatever we do, in word or deed, we are to do it in the name of Jesus, giving thanks to God the Creator through him. It sounds a lot like what we do in church. Songs, psalms, hymns, prayers, thanksgiving, giving to people in need, collecting our resources, pooling them together. In all of these accounts, there is an awareness that we cannot do it alone. That we all need some help to practice and stay on the way. Why? Well, I would first say that we all benefit from the synergy of a community. And this is not just a Christian attribute. This is a human attribute. Most of us need other people to bolster us up, to hold our hand through good times and bads, to help us stay steady, to find our way back when we've lost our way. We had a lively conversation in our worship planning this week about the purpose of church. And one of the ideas that we landed on is that church, at a spiritual and practical level, at its best, can function much like a recovery group, a place where we acknowledge we cannot figure it out alone, a place where we acknowledge that there's a higher power that can work through us collectively and individually, a place where we get real, real, real honest with ourselves, our strengths and our faults, and how we mutually support one another. A place where we admit that we all mess up every day, every week, that it's human to do that, and that there are many ways to get back to the path on which we're committed. You might also think of church like a community health club, where all of us come together to support each other in practicing and improving our spiritual game. A prayer rowing machine over there. A forgiveness bench press over there a pool for doing laps of grace somewhere over here or downstairs, a center to practice how we want to be in the world, a regular dress rehearsal in this place for what God needs from us to act on the world stage. And like other regular practices, eating healthfully, exercising regularly, flossing and brushing our teeth, bathing, cleaning, these are spiritual practices that keep us whole. They sustain us when times are good, but often, more importantly, as we perceive it, they sustain and help hold us together when times are bad. So that's all fine and good in here, in church. But what does that mean for us out there? Why would our faith, however we may express it, matter to the rest of the world? And what, do, is, what about what we do in here compels us to be and do in our relationship with the rest of the world? Now, we heard aloud these final verses from the Gospel of Matthew, commonly called the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, says Jesus. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And remember... I am with you always to the end of the age. Does that make any of us here a little itchy? A little twitchy? Like, that's, I'm just not quite sure about that. Discipleship. Obedience. And the way these verses smack of proselytizing. Most of us in our postmodern, neoliberal, secularized, comfortable 21st century existence did not sign up for this. I'm fine to go to church and all that, but... I'm not meant to make disciples of everyone, or anyone for that matter, to baptize them and teach them obedience to Jesus' commandments. 
It makes us a little uncomfortable, I've observed, even when we do it in non-coercive ways. On Palm Sunday last year, we thought it would be a fun idea to have the church school and our teachers go all the way around the big block around our church with our palms waving and chanting. We had fun. It was a way to kind of show what goes on inside here to the rest of the community. It was a way to show that we like to have fun. It was a way to just be more visible. But at least one of our concerned parents said, I didn't think we were this kind of church. When Jesus said these words to the disciples, they were in an intense time of confusion. He had just been brutally executed by the state, and now he was back. Some were worshiping, some were doubting him, some were doubting the whole endeavor they just spent their last three years of their lives embarking on. Some were probably ready to throw in the towel, to give up on it, And yet, wait, there's something more. And as Matthew reports it to us, I think Jesus wanted to give his disciples a big dose of confidence before he was physically going to leave them again. He wanted those who had been most loyal to him to be comforted, to be empowered. He wanted to encourage them to say, yes, you can do this. Look, if what I taught and showed you works for you, you can carry it forward. I know you can. Now, it's not going to be easy, but just as I have authority from God, the source of life, so you, too, can have that kind of authority. Not the source of just life in the universe, but the source of your life. And here's the key thing, the word of comfort. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, in our current context, part of this, I believe, is about learning to be actively generous with a good thing. For instance, if you have a friend who likes yoga, and you found a great yoga studio or a great yoga teacher, you would tell them about it, right? Yes? Yes. Yes. Okay. If you have a friend who loves classical music, and you found an amazing, cool, affordable classical music series, what would you do? You tell them about it, right. And if you had a friend who liked good food and you found an amazing restaurant or a grocery store or some cookbook or new TV show, tell them about it. So if you found a place and a way that valued your soul, your spiritual well-being, doing good in the world, a place that accepted you with grace and forgiveness and expressed this through music, through talks, through study groups, through prayers and service projects, and connected you to an intergenerational mix of other like-minded people in the process, well, (laughs) you tell them about it. Thank you. It's not coercive. It's sharing some good news that people need to hear. I'm just saying. And there's a deeper question. You may recall that in the first week when we asked the question, what is faith? We talked about faith being a combination of things. It could be, as we traditionally think of it, ascribing to a set of beliefs. But it also may be other things, like what we give our ultimate loyalty to, where we place our ultimate trust, or even our worldview, how we think the cosmos and this world and humanity is organized and how it works. So the deeper question is, why does your faith, the way you perceive any of this, matter to the rest of the world? right outside our doors, right outside in the rest of your lives. 
Faith, at its best, and it doesn't matter whether it's Buddhist, Muslim, Jewish, Hindu, First Nations, Zoroastrian, or whatever tradition, faith, at its best, offers us ways to make sense of our world and our own individual lives in it in the light of some bigger realities. Namely, the bigger reality that is the source of life that makes all of this possible for us. And that's what this whole Lenten series and sermon study has been about. How do we get clearer on what our individual faith actually is? One of the things I really love about Christianity is how Jesus gave us two really great, straightforward, fundamental principles. I repeat them often. When he was hard-pressed to name the greatest commandments from the Jewish tradition, he said what? To love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your heart, mind, and strength. I repeated there, but let's say it again. (laughs) To love God with all your soul, mind, and I add strength. And what was the second? To love your neighbor as yourself. If you ever wonder what this is all about, you only have to return to those two and start again. To love. To open your heart to this amazing source of life that we call God. The one whom we cannot fully comprehend, but who set the planets in motion. Our galaxy, the universe. The one who made it possible for you and me to live and breathe and move this very day. The one we just prayed to. And then to share that kind of love, that sort of wonder, that sort of gratitude for our neighbors. And it's a broad definition of neighbor. Namely, all those whom we come in contact with. Friends, family, strangers, co-workers, other students, those we like and those we don't like. The whole human family. Jesus compels us to guide our actions so that they have benefit to all who come into mind and our worldview. We've seen this kind of faith play out again and again on the human stage. Particularly, we've seen it among, we can name many Christians, devout people along the Underground Railway in the South who sheltered and transported enslaved people to emancipation in the North. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who critiqued the German church during the rise of Nazism, was part of the resistance movement, including attempting to assassinate Hitler, and was hanged in a concentration camp for his actions. Countless civil rights leaders who weren't at all afraid to meld their faith and their politics, to mix it up, to lead a movement, to speak spiritual truths to powerful, policy-changing people, win over hearts and minds of presidential administrations, break through the resolve of white supremacist ways in other municipalities. People like Mother Teresa and Dorothy Day who dedicated their lives to living among the poor, to serving them tirelessly just as Jesus did. And as I've mentioned previously, it's true in other faith traditions. People like the Dalai Lama, whose Buddhist faith is a light for the world. Or as we've spoken in this pulpit before, Malala Yousafzai, whose Muslim faith caused her to stand up for the rights of girls and women in getting an education and ignited a movement. These are spiritual giants. These are people who get the popular eye and the imagination. But we also know plenty of so-called ordinary people whose faith and the way they live it inspire us, made a difference in our lives. Some of you are doing this right now with your lives. The teacher whose faithful commitment to learning and empowering students touches lives in countless unknown ways. 
the researcher whose insights will unlock mysteries that advance our understanding of how science can further benefit the human race, the lawyer helping people and institutions achieve their highest potential or shaping and changing laws to help, the business person who puts ethical practices in place that help change the engine of capitalism to benefit people in wholesome, life-giving ways, the healthcare professional whose care and treatment patient after patient is a devotion of love of neighbor and a testament to the healing power of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, all of us, I can go on and name profession after profession, job after job, ways after ways that we do this as friends, as parents, as community members. Not all of us may interpret the work we do, the ways we are in the world through the lens of faith, but I tell you, it's a terribly empowering and creative way to think about your life. Like any religion, the way of Christ can be perverted, distorted to meet selfish and power-hungry ways of humankind. It has been historically, and there are plenty of examples of that. But that's not how it's supposed to work. That's not how Jesus of Nazareth meant for it to work. This ministry was meant to enhance and magnify the life-giving, soul-affirming presence of God the Creator in our world. To let love, real, deep, abiding love, flourish in the world. And whenever we do that, in small or medium or big ways, in explicit and implicit ways, I believe we carry forward the cause of Christ. And that, I believe, is one of the most essential parts of our faith. Now, next week on Palm Sunday, we're going to hear the foray requiem here in worship. And in our workshops, we're going to work on crafting our own expressions of faith, whether we draw them or paint them or write them down, however we want to work on them. You all who, haven't been coming, who may not have come to the workshops are welcome to do that on your own using these take-home sheets. You can share it with us because on Easter Sunday, I hope to share some of these with our guests and all of us here in worship about how the resurrection lives among us visually and through word. So I invite you to think about if and how you might want to participate in this collective understanding that the mosaic pieces of each of our individual faiths may show in a beautiful whole on Easter Sunday. For now, I invite us all to remember as we go into this next week, as we go out into the world after we've been here in church, that we've been called to the good news of love, deep, abiding love that knows no bounds, that can change people's lives, that can call all of us to life-transforming and life-affirming ways. So I invite us to walk into this commission. It is ours to do so with grace and humility, with courage, and with hope. Amen.